For some days he, Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Uh, any of you guys here are f fans of Malcolm Gladwell? Raise your hand. Uh, I love Malcolm Gladwell. The first book I read of his was Outliers. I didn't know this until this week. Uh, but he, he's got a podcast. Uh, it's called The Revisionist History. Uh, it's a lot of the historical events, stuff that's happened in the past that we hear from one perspective, but when you investigate further, maybe there's another perspective, another part of the story that you didn't understand or you didn't realize. And one episode, he, he talks about a man uh, that was named, known as Al Pacino. Uh, his nickname was Al Pacino because of the way he looked uh, from The Godfather 2, uh, and he was an ex-terrorist. He was an ex-terrorist who uh, was responsible for the massacre at the Munich Olympics. Uh, he was responsible for terrorist acts against Americans. He had American blood on his hands. And he was responsible for many bombings in Europe. And one day he just decided somehow that he wanted to leave that life. He renounced his life as a terrorist. And he came to the America and he wanted to he was looking for penance. He, he felt sorry, he felt guilty for the lifestyle he lived, and he, he opened himself up to work for the CIA. Uh, here is an ex-terrorist who uh, began to become an asset for the CIA. His leadings, his findings uh, was reliable and helped capture uh, this, um, this terrorist, I forget his name, but he he was, he was the Obama, Osama bin Laden of the 70s and 80s, and the main terrorist, uh, Jack, uh, I forget his last name, but Jack was a terrorist who was captured in part because of Al Pacino's leadings of the CIA. Uh, during the Clinton administration, 
there was an investigation to, to, to clean up, to make sure the CIA was clean, to make sure that they, they were doing things correctly uh, because there were some questions about how the CIA was run. And the Department of Justice was mind blown that an ex-terrorist got through and was an empl employed by the United States of America, was employed as an asset for the CIA. Now, how does something like that happen? I mean, that's just mind-blowing that it, an ex-terrorist who has pledged his allegiance to the destroying one thing, to living one lifestyle, decides one day that he's going to do a 180 and actually work for the American people, for the American government, and help track down those very people. Now, I think I bring that up because we see in our passage a similar 180, but to the nth googleplexed degree. We have Saul of Tarsus, who is an ex-terrorist, who becomes the greatest preacher for the Christian faith. A third of the entire New Testament was written by this man. Uh, and yet, we read his story, we read his account of his previous lifestyle. He says, my former lifestyle was that of destroying the church. Now, he thought that uh, Christians were heretical. He thought that Jesus was a crook, crook, a criminal, because in his mind, he memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I mean, he was, as he calls himself, a Pharisee of Pharisees. No one out-religious or out-scholared or out-Hebrewed or out-Mosaic-lawed me. I mean, he was the champion of champions when it comes to the Mosaic Law. And as a student of the Mosaic Law, he would have known the passage in Deuteronomy that says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. So how could this Jesus, who calls himself the Messiah, be both cursed and the Son of God? The Messiah and a criminal. He couldn't get around his head. And so he was determined to stop what was heretical, to stop what was a threat against the very law of God. And he goes to Damascus, and something happens. As we saw last week, he sees a light, he hears a voice, he, hears, he meets the Lord Jesus, who asks, why are you persecuting me? And he becomes a completely different man. This story is just completely mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Uh, you, you think about it. You have someone who is, I mean, I'm going to take a risk here with you guys. Uh, you guys know me better than to make political statements up here, okay? Uh, I don't do that sort of stuff. Uh, but I, I, make this, I bring this up to make this point. All right. Imagine you're watching television, and you, you see on TV either, I'm not taking sides, but you, you hear either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump get up, and on national television say, I don't deserve to be elected. Uh, I'm behind all the false statements against the other person. I, re I am responsible for all the troubles in this country. And the other candidate is the greatest thing that has ever happened. And we should all unify as a country and get together and show our support. I mean, we wouldn't believe it. We wouldn't believe our ears. I mean, we're talking the other person's nasty, the other person's the worst thing that's ever happened, and all of a sudden, he's the best thing since sliced bread. I mean, Jesus Christ is a criminal, and I am going to, the last passage we read in uh, Acts 9, it says that Saul in 9.1 
was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, I think our translation last week said it was breathing murderous threats. Okay? So he's on his way to Damascus in order to destroy these very people. He sees light, hears a voice, goes blind, uh, can't see for three days. We're talking three days. And all of a sudden, he, 180, he goes around and says this. He starts proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Three days. I mean, three days of silence. Three days of, of blindness. And that's all it takes. And all of a sudden, uh, I mean, I, I was thinking of some examples. It's, it's like, um, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, not a Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones fan, uh, and any game, anyone, I don't want to be spoiling anything for anybody. Anyone watch Game of Thrones? Maybe I, I might get in trouble for bringing this example up. But if you watch Game of Thrones, uh, you know that the, there is a, a struggle for power for who sits on the Iron Throne. And you have some families uh, of the Lannister family, and then you have people of the Stark family, and they don't like each other. I'm oversimplifying it, but you get the point. But imagine a Lannister who is saying, these people are the worst people ever, and deciding one day, I'm going to fight for the Starks instead. I mean, we're talking a complete 180 degrees. Now, this is why, for me, it's so puzzling. The Apostle Paul, he had no personal benefit. He had zero personal benefit for joining the other side. I mean, no monetary gain, no social gain. I mean, all his... Uh, he grew up as a Pharisee. He grew up as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And all of a sudden, he's saying that Jesus is the Son of God. He has no social gain for doing this. It's not like he's got a bent or any inclination for wanting this to be true. He didn't want Jesus to be true or Jesus to return. Uh, he made a firm decision. He, he sold his service. He sold his soul. He consented to the stoning of Stephen. And he's on his way. And for me, this is such a radical transformation, it begs the question, what happened? Because for me, this is one of the greatest apologies, I think, in, for the Christian faith. I mean, it's, it's the same reason why you have the, the existence of the church, uh, the, the, the disciples. I mean, you have the brother of James who, who saw Jesus growing up as a kid. And make, imagine you're growing up as a kid who's saying, uh, your sibling is saying, I'm the son of God. I mean, that, that's that's pretty creepy. I mean, like, you think he's a loser, he's a lunatic. And yet, he, as well as the other disciples, they preached Jesus to death. They proclaimed Jesus, saying he is the Son of God. He is risen. I have seen him. Uh, Jesus appeared to 500 witnesses. The Apostle Paul says, uh, go, go to see any of the 500 people. I, I dare you, I challenge you. Any one of those 500 could have renounced. I, that never happened. Go ask him. He's challenging them. And then you have the Apostle Paul, who was a Saul of Tarsus. In three days, he's changed and transformed. It begs the question, what happened? Uh, and I think we cannot, even if, if skeptics of the Bible, we cannot take lightly his testimony. Uh, we, I mean, even if you don't believe that the Bible was written to be true, historically, you have people who talk about the Saul of Tarsus and who know about the Apostle Paul uh, being the greatest f uh, founder or um, proponent of the Christian faith. Uh, and, and for me, it, you, we have to ask the question, what happened? What's the greatest and simplest explanation 
for, for this transformation. And I, I think that the transformation has uh, a lot of credibility for the fact that it really did happen. Um, now, the Christian faith, not, not only the, the 12 disciples uh, minus Judas, uh, but you have Saul, uh, most of them, uh, with the exception of uh, maybe John, who's, who's, um, who dies on an island alone. I don't know how he dies exactly, but most of them just go to, they're to burn the stake. Uh, they die for their faith. And I love this. Pascal says, I tend to trust the witnesses who get their throats cut. Uh, Lee Strobel, uh, who was a journalist uh, who wanted to disprove Christianity after investigating, honestly, he said this. The disciples were in a unique position to know whether the resurrection actually happened, and they were willing to go to their deaths proclaiming it was true. Obviously, people will die for their religious convictions if they sincerely believe they are true. Religious fanatics have done that throughout history. While they may strongly believe in the tenets of their religion, however, they do not know for a fact that their faith is based on the truth. They're simply not in a position where they can know for sure. They can only believe. In stark contrast, the disciples were in a unique position to know for a fact whether Jesus had returned from the dead. They said they saw him, touched him, and ate with him. And knowing the truth of what they actually experienced, they were willing to die for him. Had they known it was a lie, they would never have been willing to sacrifice their lives. Nobody willingly dies for something they didn't know is false. Nobody willingly dies for something they know is false. They proclaimed the resurrection to their deaths for one reason alone. They knew it was true because they had personally encountered and experienced the risen Jesus. Uh, for me, I love that. Uh, because you have the Apostle Paul who does not want Christianity, and yet he becomes a proponent and the greatest champion. It reminds me of the story of C.S. Lewis and his conversion. C.S. Lewis, if you know his uh, story, uh, you know G.R. Tolkien was his friend, and he tried to bring him to faith, and, and they had conversations. Uh, they had book clubs, and uh, G.R. Tolkien, who's a believer, uh, the author of The Lord of the Rings, uh, he, would, he would say, why do we crave stories? Why do we love hearing about fairy tales and stories? And uh, why do the characters grip us? Why do we, uh, I mean, I know Lady loves stories. I mean, wh why does they grip you? I mean, why do we get so attached to the characters? My wife and I watched the movie uh, yesterday and the day before and the day before that. We watched A Star is Born. And uh, the first half of the movie, I'm going, okay, we rented it, but I should have probably bought it because this, this, this is an amazing movie. I love this movie. This is great. I mean, the, the, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not a sucker for romance, but I was a sucker for romance the first half of the movie. Uh, second half of the movie, I'm going, man, this movie stinks. I'm glad I didn't buy it <laughs> because there's no redemption. It's horrible. Uh, the, the, one of my most favorite and most hated movies at the same time is Atonement uh, with Keira Knightley. And, and I love it and I hate it for this very reason. Uh, the first time I watched it, uh, I hated it. I just absolutely hated it because the whole time Kira Knightley is looking for atonement to know that what she, or not Kira Knightley, um, Kira Knightley's sister Bree is looking for atonement. Uh, she wants to know that what she did against her sister can be forgiven, is not going to be held against her. It didn't ruin someone else's life. Uh, she wants to know it's okay. Uh, you're still loved, and she never finds it, and that's how the movie ends. So she she writes this book, this made-up story of what coulda, shoulda, woulda happened. 
Uh, and it's awful. It's awful. But then I started to love it. And that was one of my favorite movies of all time because it speaks to the very thing that we're all longing for, redemption. And G.R. Tolkien asked C.S. Lewis, why do we look for stories? Why do we get gripped by stories? It's because these all stories all point to our craving for redemption. C.S. Lewis eventually asking honestly the questions of the Christian faith, asking honestly uh, the uh, questions about the resurrection, can it be true? Asking questions about uh, the Saul of Tarsus, how do we, what's the simplest explanation? Uh, I mean, the burden of proof, when we talk about the burden of proof, we, a lot of us Christians, we, we think, okay, the burden of proof is for us to show and prove to, to someone who doesn't believe in our faith why our faith is true. But really, what accounts for the existence of the early church? The church who would go on to give up their very lives. Um, that has to be explained somehow. C.S. Lewis said this after his conversion. He said, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In a Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? And he says this, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. I love that. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Uh, for those of you who know me, uh, I may have shared with you my story uh, different ways many times, um, but I, I grew up in the church, and in a lot of ways I can resonate with the apostle uh, Paul, when he was the Saul of Tarsus. Uh, I mean, the Saul, in, in his uh, testimony in, in, in uh, Philippians 3, says this. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I am more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, we're talking, not only did he know the law, but he was blameless. Um, I don't know how this really works, because my kids are in the first grade, and part of my story is that I read the Bible in its entirety by the time I was in the first grade, and that can't be true. I mean, I, mean, I look at my kids, they can barely read. Uh, so I must have had some sort of kid's version of that. Uh, but I remember reading the Bible the first time, whatever version it was, uh, in the first grade. And I remember going to my mom and dad, going, look, I finished it. And my mom saying, well, I'm so proud. And she goes to my dad saying, hey, your son, your, your second born, your middle son, read the Bible in its entirety, cover to cover. And they were so proud of me. And I immediately saw that 
this was a way to earn the approval of my parents. Uh, so I did it again, second grade, all the way through. Most, probably more, a more advanced version of the Bible. Uh, but still, it was like, come on, guys. I mean, how much does a second grade know about how to read, right? But I read the Bible all the way through. And, and I go to them again. Mom, Dad, I read the Bible all the way through again. Oh, my gosh, our second-born son. He's amazing. Um, the third grade uh, comes along, uh, and my, um, my grades were not up to par, let's just say. Uh, I grew up in a family where uh, my... I didn't really learn English at home. Um, in fact, I taught myself how to read with my mom, where every other word she'd correct me, and every other word I would correct her. Uh, and we figured it out together. Um, but I got behind in school pretty early on. And in the third grade, uh, my, my parents uh, decided they're going to hold me back by the recommendation of my teacher. And... Um, and uh, they, put, they held me back for a year in the third grade. So I, I repeated the third grade. Uh, and to, to save me shame, to spare me shame, uh, they moved me from one school to another just down the street, just down the street to a different school. So my brother still went to the same school, but I went to another one. So they carpooled me to different schools because they didn't want Steve to be embarrassed that he's the guy who repeated the third grade. And so uh, during that time, uh, my father comes into, uh, he, he liked to knock. I don't know why he knocked. If, you know, if, if you're a parent and you got kids, they got a door, please respect your door. Because if you, all you do, the purpose of the knocking is going, I'm coming in and don't give me a pure response. That's not cool. So that's how my father did it though. He, he would knock on the door and he just opened the door immediately. Not even wait for hello. Not even, hold on one second. Uh, not, I'm, I'm changing. Just, hey, what's up? And so he would knock on my older brother's door and, and go, oh my gosh, you're, you're, you're studying. Uh, I'm, I'm so proud of you. Good, good job. He, my brother always studied. He's, he's always an overachiever. Um, he walks into my door and immediately he sees me just lying down on the, on the floor, literally, uh, on the carpet, looking at the, the bumps on the ceiling and imagining constellations. Um, and he goes, what are you doing? Uh, you're wasting time. I walked into your brother's room, and he's studying, and this is why you're failing school. Uh, from now on, when your brother eats, you eat. When your brother plays, you play. When your brother uh, goes to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom. When your brother studies, you study. Uh, like, literally do whatever your brother does. Uh, and it didn't, I didn't realize how much it affected me until later in life. Uh, but the message I received at that moment was, the only way I'm going to be loved and accepted is if I'm like my older brother and if I'm an achiever. And, and I'm never going to be caught. And I made a vow to myself, I'm never going to be caught uh, with my pants down where I, I'm, I feel stupid. Where, where, I look like, uh, where, I feel, where I look like I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I'm never going to be caught without knowing the answers or uh, not studying and working hard. Uh, so the third grade, next, second grade, grade, uh, grade three, round two comes along, and uh, it helps that, um, you know, I've done everything before already, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm determined, and I, I'm at the top of my class, yeah, from there on out, uh, just at the top going, again, I'm going to be one of the smartest people, because this is how I'm going to be loved. Um, uh, junior high uh, comes along, and the whole time I'm finding myself doing what my brother does, but better. 
so my brother uh, is a student in high school and I'm in middle school. And he, for whatever, even from middle, even from middle school, if you guys know me and my brother and my, my story, you know that uh, we, we work hard. We yangs, we work hard. We yangs, we don't sleep. Uh, if you sleep, that means you're lazy. Uh, and my brother, for whatever reason, he, uh, when he was in middle school, he pulled all-nighters. And he, 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 he took a nap. You're laughing. That's <laughs> true. In middle school, okay, we have an, a middle school brother pulling all-nighters uh, to, to study. And when I get to middle school, I'm not going to be outdone. And, and so I'd say about 90... I mean, I, 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 even for middle school, I didn't get more than four or five hours of sleep. Uh, for a middle school guy. Middle, I mean, you guys have middle school students. Who has a middle school kid? I mean, you know, they're supposed to sleep. Uh, so as a middle school student, I, I never slept. Um, high school comes along. My older brother uh, joins the Christian club, and he eventually becomes a Christian leader. Uh, when uh, I become join the Christian club. I become the Christian leader. Yes. My brother joined uh, the Christian band. He was a guitarist. Uh, he was a musician. He actually knew what he was doing. I, I didn't have anything but the beat, so I became a drummer, but I made sure I joined the Christian band, too. Uh, and I joined the praise team. Um, my brother memorized books of the uh, passages of the Bible, so I just decided I'm going to memorize books of the Bible, and that's what I started to do. Uh, in high school, I read the Bible more times than I could count. And I took great pride in knowing that uh, I could say, when, when my friend said, hey, you read the Bible, cover to cover, and someone else would say twice, that I could secretly, proudly say, I read the Bible more times than I can count. Uh, college comes along. I, I go to UCLA. I thank God because my brother went to UC Berkeley, and I cannot be outdone because what would that say about me? Uh, I, I study philosophy and specialize in logic, logic and language, because if I ever get in a debate, I'm going to make sure I know what I'm talking about and never be caught looking stupid again. Um, first two years of college, memorized Romans, Philippians, Hebrews, 1 John, Ephesians, Galatians, and 1 Timothy in that order. Uh, and I still wasn't a Christian. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until uh, my third year of college where... Due to my failures, um, God showed me that the best things that I could muster up was still not good enough. Um, and that all my life I was not living as a Christian, but all my life I was living saying, if anyone deserves to be Christian, it's me. And I found myself one day uh, during my conversion story, um, I remember listening to my, my friend Bill, who was a preacher in L.A., and I remember listening to him and going, God, whatever he's talking about, this grace thing, that's just that's too much. Give me wisdom to discern that maybe he's, he's representing the evil one and he's deceiving me, letting me know that this grace thing is, is, is true. And if, I, if this grace thing is true, then I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. And, and that's against your holiness. And, and God, give me discernment to know if this is from you. Um, and it was during college, I would hear him preach the gospel week after week. And I remember thinking, if this is true, this is the greatest news ever. But it can't be that good. It can't be that sweet. 
One day, I was, you know, most people, when they take a shower, they, they get shampoo and put it over their hair, and that's kind of, that's the end of the, that's, that's the goal. Uh, for me, when I took a shower, I would recite the book, a book of the Bible. So one day, I was reciting Philippians, and um, I came across reciting this verse. If anyone thinks, I myself has reasons for the confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. If anyone thinks he deserves to be Christian, it's me. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever else I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered a loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, scubalon, scooby-doo, just crap, poop, worthless junk garbage, sewer, uh, garbage disposal material. All the stuff that I was presenting before God and other people, Paul was saying, was scubalon. But what counts is the righteousness of God that comes by faith and comes from God. And for me, it just it, it clicked that all my life I wasn't even a Christian. A uh, uh, student of the Bible, memorizer of the seven books of the Bible, kept sexual purity from the youth, uh, outdid my older brother, outperformed, got the grades, made the team, but still was not a follower of Jesus. And it wasn't until God had to break me and show me that I am nothing but filthy rags. What I bring to the table is not yet good enough. And the only thing that counts is the righteousness of Christ, that it all started to make sense. And so you have that in the Apostle Paul. He, things start to click, and it says here that, it says in Acts chapter 9, all who, he is the Son of God, Paul said, and all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his, this name? And has he not come for this purpose to bound them before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Jerusalem by proving that Jesus was the Christ. By proving. That word uh, it actually means literally putting, the, putting together. He was putting the pieces together like a puzzle. Not only for them, but I imagine for himself. For, the guy, for he knew that curse is the man who hung on a tree, but now he was starting to see Jesus must have been cursed not for himself, but for me. Because he has risen. He is alive. And um, immediately, uh, when I became a follower of Jesus, uh, if, for those of you guys who know me and my story, um, and I, kind of wanted to, I wanted to go to seminary basically to show other Christians you're doing it wrong. It's not about, it's not about jumping higher, running faster, swimming longer. It, it, it's about Christ. And, and it's the greatest news ever. Shouldn't we be talking about this? And, and the seminary... Uh, some of you guys may know that I had a, a certain reputation um, and um, may have appeared to have gone off the loose end. Uh, and I remember people saying, Steve, you're, you're, gone, you're gone too far with this whole grace thing. And I love this whole thing about legalism or antinomianism. Is it, is it about a pendulum going the other way? Are we too worried about this grace thing going the other way? And I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says that legalism... And antinomianism, legalism is to simplify, uh, doing whatever you want, I guess. 
or no, that's not right. Legalism is doing what God says is right, doing the right thing. And antinomianism is anti, against, and no, no nomos, or nomism is law, so anti-law, just there is no law, it doesn't matter, you can do whatever you want, okay? And so we have this, is it, is it, are we supposed to keep the law and be holy, or are we supposed to eh, forget about it, it's all this grace thing, already antithetical. And oftentimes we think it goes in a pendulum, where exactly is the balance? And since Claire Ferguson said that both of these, antinomianism, legalism and antinomianism, are uh, essentially twins that have the same evil root, uh, that it, it divorces itself from the person of Christ. Legalism, he says, is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal touch in the rule it submits to. Legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. Antinomianism and legalism are not so much antithetical to each other as they are both antithetical to, to grace. This is why Scripture never prescribes one as the antidote for the other. Rather, grace, God's grace in Christ in our union with Him is the antidote to both. This is where I want to uh, point us to. The Apostle Paul, he goes from one place to another. He's, he's, he's escaping uh, because the disciples give him a head, or he gets a heads up, and the disciples lower him, lower him through a basket, and he's off. And he goes to Jerusalem, and he runs to the, the, the disciples. And yet not one of the disciples, I mean, they're, I mean, who, I mean, you got a terrorist coming after you. I mean, who's going to believe that? I mean, is it, you're wondering, is this a setup? And none of the, the disciples believe him, uh, except for a, a man named Barnabas, who, who vouches for him. And, and I, I want you to really think and wonder about that, because uh, if we're going to be a church that sees people uh, come to faith here, uh, if we are going to be a church that welcomes the Saul of Tarsus's, we need Barnabas in our congregation. We need you, we need me to be Barnabases to welcome people. To, are we, can, can we be a church? Wouldn't it be great if CTK, J.P. Roxbury could be a church where people can bring their questions, can bring their doubts, can bring their self-righteousness, uh, can, can bring their questions here. Um, Ernest Becker uh, says this in the, uh, the, the Denial of Death. He talks about how we as people or unlike any other animals. We're unlike any other animals. Uh, we're not like the monkeys. We're not like, uh, he, he's not a Christian. And he, yet he, he acknowledges that there's a difference between us and the other brutes. Uh, he's a, a psychologist uh, who, who died about maybe, I want to say 15 years ago, give or take. Uh, but he says there's a, the, the humanity, there's a paradox because we are aware of our mortality but also we have this awareness that we have a name, that we were meant for so much more. It's like we're, we're aware that we're going to die, we're, that we're limited, and at the same time we're, we know that we're made for significance. And he says that we use strategies to overcome anxiety. He says we distract ourselves, you know, we, we turn into narcotics, technology, uh, to what he calls immortality projects. Immortality projects. We give ourselves to some cause, career, uh, family, relationships, romance, and we participate in something of lasting worth, a way we try to justify ourselves. And um, I was thinking about that this week because who's, as someone who came to Christ from self-righteousness, uh, from a smaller story of trying to be greater than my brother, 
uh, 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 someone who has been, whose light has been shown uh, that it's about what God has done and not what I bring to the table. Uh, I find that I still uh, can resonate with what Ernest Becker is talking about, that I still struggle with my anxieties, my immortality projects, my self-salvation methods of trying to be somebody. Uh, this week, I had to confess to uh, some of my brothers, some of, my, some of you guys, uh, some, of my, uh, some of you guys here, uh, and with my, mom, my wife. And I've shared this before, but I, I will share it again, that every time I'm up here, uh, I struggle with the need and desire to appear smarter than I really am, or to appear put together, that I have it all together, that I have, all, that I have the answers. And I was sharing with some of these guys that uh, there was a magnet on my, uh, on my um, aunt's, thank you, on my aunt's uh, refrigerator. It said, be profound, funny, or quiet. And I'm like, that's so cool. Be profound, funny, or quiet. And I love that because, uh, you know, I was kind of already assuming I was the profound and, you know, like everyone else needs to shut up sort of thing. Uh, but, like, I found that that's my modus operandi, that that's how I function, that that's be profound, funny, or quiet. So, like, if, you know, I'm not a funny guy, uh, and, but I could maybe be the profound guy. But if I'm not profound or don't have anything brilliant to say, I find myself often being quiet. And I remember writing in my journal, uh, writing uh, that Kendra one time mentioned that we were at a dinner table with another couple, and she's like, you're really aloof. You're, you're just very distant. You're kind of quiet, standoffish. Why was that? I'm like, I didn't know I was. Uh, but then it later occurred to me that it's because I'm being profound, funny, or quiet. And if I have nothing brilliant to say, I'll stay quiet. And for fear of being boring, I don't talk, and so I end up being boring. Uh, and it's just this, it's this crazy thing where I still find myself needing the approval of other people. And for me to be able to bring this to the light here uh, is empowering. It, it loosens the grip that I have. And I bring that up because of this. It's not about the Saul of Tarsus becoming the Apostle Paul's uh, and we got to hurry up and change and transform and be, be a completely different person, turn over a new leaf. It's not even about Barnabas's, uh, us being Barnabas's, welcoming people in. Because it's not about what we do. It's about what God has done. He is the hero of this story. The Apostle Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, was not even looking for Jesus. And Barnabas, it says this, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria, had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, that is the church, it multiplied. And the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that word comfort could be translated encouraging. It's the word paraclete, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, like the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. He's the comforter. And what I love about this is that Barnabas, his name is the son of encouragement, son of paraclete. And what I got from that is that the Holy Spirit builds his church up and comforts us one another by by son of Barnabas's, by what we do. God comforts us each other, gives us strength, stiffens our spine by what he does in us. And it's not about being better, it's about being better only when God rescues us and delivers us. And can we give each other the space 
to be welcome here, to be part of our community, and know that, like, I mean, the reason why a lot of us can't uh, have a hard time with welcoming Saul's of Tarsus, Saul's of Tarsus is, is because we innately somehow think that we're better. And when we see that either God, or even though God delivered Steve Yang, the self-righteous guy, God's still delivering Steve Yang, the self-righteous guy today. And I'm an approval suck, and I'm bringing that to you, and I'm asking you guys to give me the grace uh, to uh, bring my questions and my concerns and my doubts here. And I want to give you the same. Let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are the comforter. You are the God who uh, does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You are a God who uh, rescues uh, even the most broken, uh, even the most um, pagan, people who make us uncomfortable, the most uh, who don't have things together. And yet you also are a God who delivers us the self-righteous, delivers us the good, the obedient, the kind, the good father, the available husband, the, the loving, serving wife, the patient mother. Uh, you are a God who makes us a people enraptured, taken, uh, just taken anew by your grace, and we can only see that happen if you show up. So Holy Spirit, I ask for your grace upon us here today. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table, and I ask the Lord you would connect the dots uh, of what your Holy Spirit can imprint, and only your Holy Spirit can bring for us, that your truth, that we are loved and delighted by God, that we are sons and daughters of God, would touch us in our deepest being, empower us to be the people that you're calling us to be. Uh, for the kids that are coming in, I ask that you would give them a deeper understanding that your grace, your gospel is sweet, it's real, it's transformative, and only Holy Spirit, you can do that. So I ask for this time that it would be meaningful, uh, that it would be empowering, and that we'd be a better church because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.